should we be testing all patients, non-emergencies, but urgencies before going to the OR in order to conserve PPE? That question comes up a lot. Testing is a constrained resource for us as well. And of course, the wild card here is that there are asymptomatic cases. Welcome to the OTA Podcast, your home for conversations with leading experts in orthopedic trauma. Please note that the views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Orthopedic Trauma Association or its members. Hello, I'm Samir Mehta, Chair of the OTA Education Committee, and welcome to the OTA Podcast. This series of episodes is a replay of the March 27th OTA webinar entitled COVID-19, Preparedness and Orthopedic Trauma OTA Panel Discussion. We've taken the webinar audio and divided it into three episodes to make it more accessible for podcasts. In this first episode in our series discussing the current COVID-19 crisis, we hear from a panel of leading experts in orthopedic trauma, as well as a special guest, Dr. P.J. Brennan, the Chief Medical Officer for the University of Pennsylvania Health System and an infectious disease and epidemiologist specialist. The panel will discuss the COVID-19 disease process, what's going on currently, and where it's headed. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us this evening. I'm not even sure where to begin in terms of this webinar and why we're doing it, how this all sort of happened. I didn't think I would see something like this in my life. Maybe I was naive in that sense. I feel like I'm watching a bad Netflix movie with the end of the world, and you sort of watch it and wonder, how did they happen to get there, and why couldn't they figure it out before then? Having said that, I want to thank everyone for, for being here. I want to thank the faculty that are joining us this evening. I particularly want to thank the OTA staff who have done a yeoman's work to bring all of this together uh, in a very short period of time. And as I said, this is a, a fairly unique time for, I think, everyone who's participating, both as a faculty member on this call, as well as the people who are listening to this webinar. Just to lay out the plan for the next 90 minutes, uh, the first 30 minutes are going to be discussing the disease process by a content matter expert, followed by uh, discussions on what the role of the orthopedic trauma surgeon is and the role of the acute trauma care setting. And then the third part is looking at alternative strategies for providing care and education to those around us. I'd like to introduce our panel, starting off with the orthopedic trauma surgeons that are participating, including Mike McKee from Arizona, Andy Schmidt from Minneapolis, Roman Haida from Rhode Island, Michael Gardner from California, Bill Ritchie from New York, Son Muir from Tampa, Florida, and Ken Eagle from New York. So we have a couple of people who are in the epicenter of this and are living it right now. And so we truly appreciate their time, as I know it's been relatively crazy in New York. Our last speaker and the first speaker of the night is going to be P.J. Brennan. P.J. Brennan is an infectious disease doctor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a colleague and a friend. He has been the chief medical officer and senior vice president at Penn Medicine. He has led the blueprint for quality at Penn Medicine. He oversees healthcare quality, patient safety, regulatory affairs, and medical affairs. He developed the Center for Evidence-Based Practice at Penn. He is an infectious disease physician and also served as director of infection control at Penn for 11 years. He also directed the TB control center for the city of Philadelphia for seven years. He has been a fellow of the Infectious Disease Society and also served as the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America's president in 2008. He's served on the advisory committee. He's actually chaired the advisory committee to the secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, and is extremely accomplished in this role. 
We have the pleasure and distinct unique opportunity to have him give us an update on this disease, what's going on, where it's headed. And finally, just to end it off, I'd like to say that PJ has been a good friend and a mentor through my time here at Penn. With that, Dr. Brennan, the floor is yours for uh, the next 30 minutes. Thank you, Samir. It's a pleasure to, to be here with all of you tonight and these colleagues. I'll begin with an overview of the epidemic, and uh, I, I'm going to try to go through these slides quickly. Uh, I'm anticipating some of what I say may be provocative, not intentionally so, but there are lots of opinions about this pandemic, and we're still operating in a phase where uh, much is unknown. On slide three, the point that I would like to make is the second bullet. We are 87 days into the, the global awareness of the presence of this virus, SARS-CoV-2, that causes the disease COVID-19. Under ordinary circumstances, I think 87 days into the awareness of the existence of a, of a new virus would be a time to reflect on remarkable accomplishments in the understanding of the virus and in the developments of treatments and preventive measures, except that uh, in these pandemic times, we are really straining at 87 days to keep up with the rapidly rapidly developing events. These slides you've no doubt seen in a variety of uh, lay publications. What I'll note here is the text at the bottom of the page. I extracted this this morning from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource site, and at that time there were 542,000 people sickened worldwide. I checked on it a few minutes before beginning this program, and that number was up over 590,000, and the official count of deaths was at, uh, at 26,000. So the pace of this is just extraordinary. And you can see now that the United States is, has over 100,000 cases and has more cases than any, any country in the world, as we've heard in the last few days. The U.S. map is now uh, riddled with cases, and the epicenter has shifted from the West Coast, where it first began in this country, to the northeastern United States and the mid-Atlantic states, most intensely in New York City. While we are not uh, in the epicenter in Philadelphia, we have certainly begun to feel the pinch of this disease. And while we're not nearly as strained as our colleagues in New York City and, and northern New Jersey, we're beginning to feel the effects of that as New York City hospitals are taxed to the limit. We are beginning to see patients move from New York City to transfer routine care and in some instances to have care for COVID-19 move into, uh, into our hospitals. At this point in time, we're seeing about four or five admissions a day to each of our hospitals in southeastern Pennsylvania, which we see as being part of the New York sphere of influence. And uh, at that hospital, we have about 40 patients in-house right now. We seem to be seeing a disproportionate number of patients who are requiring intubation and ventilator support. So uh, where is this going? Our data scientists at Penn Medicine have developed a now widely used prediction tool. There are a number of, of prediction tools, but this one, this one seems to be holding up very well. Right now, our data scientists are using a doubling time of four days. The reality in our region is that it's a little bit faster. Social distancing are factors like working from home, school closures, and the distance that people spend away from each other. And the predicted effect of that at this point in time in our region is about 30 to 40 percent success, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it's actually a quite high level of social distancing. Our data scientists are using a longer doubling time than we're seeing in the community. And as I said, that will bring us to an earlier peak. All right, so these are the data that the tool is generating. And what it's showing us is a bracket around the low spread rate and the high spread rate of the epidemic in our in our region. So using uh, a low spread rate, 
which would be a longer doubling time, more than four days, as long as seven or 10 days, and a social contact reduction of about 40%. You can see that in this slide, which shows you census, that uh, on the left-hand side, the number of patients that we would see in our hospitals in our region at about the beginning of June would be about 1,750 patients with, with COVID-19. At the high-end spread, at four days or fewer, using a, uh, a lower social contact reduction, so this is a, a worst-case scenario, the census uh, could be as high as 2,500 patients with COVID-19 and an ICU hospitalization census of just under 1,500 cases. So these are uh, certainly daunting numbers for a metropolitan area the size of Philadelphia. With that degree of high rate of spread, this would vastly exceed the number of ICU beds that we're, we're seeing in our region. Moving on, you know, the issues of, uh, of management are, are critical. We're expecting that about 80% of patients can be managed at home. About 5% will need critical care, and about 1% of patients would be vented. That's what we're anticipating from the data over the last few months in, in various parts of the world. If so many patients can be sent home, telemedicine and home care capabilities will be invaluable assets to all of us. We're using our home care services to a significant degree and using telehealth to actually relieve the home care services. They're, they're managing as many patients at home right now as we're managing in the hospitals. And among our hospitals at this point, with a doubling time of two to three days, we're expecting that not by this weekend, but by next weekend, we'll have 500 patients in our hospitals. Right now, we're closing in on 100, but with that kind of doubling time, we're expecting a very rapid acceleration, and our home care services are going to be critical to helping keep our heads above water for as long as we can. Laboratory diagnostics have been a really challenging issue everywhere. More test kits are becoming available I expect in all of your institutions as well, we're, we have the capability of doing in-house tests. But even at that, we only have the ability to do a few hundred tests a day. We've done several thousand tests over the course of the epidemic, but we're still quite limited in what we can do. So we're limiting our testing to critically ill patients, emergency department patients, and then testing of staff who are in the uh, recovery phase of the illness or are becoming symptomatic. So surge capacity is, is something that we're spending a lot of time on. We're thinking of surge capacity in terms of three levels of surge. The first level of surge is, is surge in place, where we've set up tents outside our hospitals to siphon off patients who would come into the hospital, perhaps expose our staff needlessly, and draw down our supplies of personal protective equipment. The second level of surge is moving out into clinical spaces that are currently unoccupied. We have some units that do not currently have beds. But in contrast to level one surging in place, where we have nearly 500 beds available to us as a result of drawing down our, our census, delaying elective surgery, canceling non-essential visits at the present time, level two is a very thin layer for us. It accounts for about 50 beds. So we're thinking very seriously about public facilities, both on campus and in other places around the city, as you're hearing in New York with the Javits Center. Uh, one of the university's basketball arenas in the city is going to be converted into a space for up to 250 beds. I would have to say that we're quite disappointed in the public response. If social distancing is not as effective as we hope, and if things take off as they have in Italy and New York City and, uh, and in the Northwest, 250 beds in public spaces will not nearly serve our needs during this time. 
So uh, I want to move on now to uh, issues that I think will be of greater concern to you, particularly uh, how you're going to be protected during this time and measures that we've had to take. And, you know, I wish that we had the capability to provide everybody with the level of protection that will make them feel, you know, entirely comfortable in the work that they do. But as you well know, we have significant deficiencies in our supply chain and in the uh, availability of masks and PAPRs and surgical masks, respirators, PAPRs, and surgical masks across the country. And all of us are doing everything that we can, availing ourselves of every opportunity and buying up anything that we can that uh, approximates FDA approval or, uh, or NIOSH approval in terms of respirators. The pictures that you see here from top to bottom represent an N95 respirator, which has the ability to, uh, with 95% efficiency, filter out submicron particles. Powered air purifying respirators, similar to the ones that you use in the types of surgery that you do, and have a uh, higher filtration capacity. They're relatively comfortable to wear, and the positive pressure of filtered air drives purified air out through the uh, face shield and through the bottom of the mask, and is a very, very effective, comfortable means of providing safe ambient air to a healthcare worker and should be used by someone who fails an N95 fit testing test or has a beard. So it's essential if you're using an N95 respirator that a good seal is on the face. PAPRs do not require such a seal. Beyond those two, should we exceed our supplies of those two in this epidemic? Other masks appear to be effective, including surgical masks that have been used in settings of supply deficiency. Uh, we're using ear loop masks now for all of our staff as they enter the hospital to protect them against droplet precautions because it still appears, despite uh, some data that's been published, that droplets are the main uh, and, and the predominant method of uh, transmission of, of this infection. So I want to talk a little bit about how we're approaching this, and I'll certainly be interested in uh, colleagues, faculty colleagues here in their methods of inventory control and practices around the highest level of respiratory protection. So situations where an N95 respirator is indicated for a procedure, we are allocating one respirator per per day to each provider directly performing a high-risk aerosol generating procedure. The respirator is provided directly to the uh, individual in high-risk procedures And to the extent that we have supply available to those who are performing intermediate risk procedures, and in a table in a slide to come, I will uh, show you how we've assessed those procedures. Uh, The OR staff, from an operational standpoint, has to enforce this, centrally securing the supply. This policy really is about ensuring that those who are at greatest risk by virtue of delivering direct care to patients known to have COVID-19 have the supplies available to them. When you're performing an aerosol-generating procedure, it's imperative that you limit those in the, rooms, in the room to only those people who are essential to the procedure. The direct care provider should wear an N95 respirator and a face shield for the aerosol-generating procedure. Other staff that must be present should maintain a distance of at least six feet because we consider uh, significant exposures to be those occurring within six feet for a prolonged period of time that uh, is defined as 10 minutes or greater. Others in the room who are beyond six feet and are not involved in the aerosol generation should wear a surgical mask and OR attire per routine. So this is our risk stratification. Individuals, thoracic surgeons and anesthesiologists involved in thoracic procedures, lung transplant surgeons, 
interventional pulmonologists who are performing bronchoscopies are at the highest risk and would always receive a mask for those procedures. The intermediate risk procedures include anesthesiologists for uh, some procedures, interventional cardiologists, otolaryngologists with their procedures in the airway, and oral maxillofacial surgeons. Despite performing procedures in the airway for those two categories, most of their procedures are not aerosol generating. And lower risk procedures, which we would consider to be uh, orthopedics as well, uh, as these others uh, would not be uh, at our facility offered an N95 mask unless the patient was known or suspect to have COVID-19. So uh, these next two slides really walk through in some detail what should be done when treating a patient that is neither suspected nor confirmed to have COVID-19 or suspected to confirm uh, confirmed to have COVID-19. So we are reusing uh, N95s in the circumstance of not being suspect or, or confirmed to have COVID-19 in an effort to maintain our supply of respirators. And we are recycling those using uh, UV radiation. We may move to a, a heat source to uh, uh, disinfect them after use, but we're trying to recycle those and uh, reuse them day to day. For individuals who are suspected or confirmed to have COVID-19, the key issue here is to remove and discard the mask at the end of the procedure. Again, limiting room entry and exit during the procedure. And in this instance, everyone in the room should have uh, an N95 or a powered air purifying respirator. The room should be closed for an hour after the procedure. So, uh, you know, to dive right into the controversy, I'm sure you've all heard by now of the New England Journal paper that was published about a week ago that used an aerosol generating device and demonstrated that uh, if you look in uh, row B of this table, that uh, aerosols were uh, maintained for uh, a period of time at modestly high titers and uh, continued to be obtained from the aerosol for a period of one to two hours after its generation. This paper also looked at different surfaces and the viability on different surfaces and demonstrated that copper and cardboard were the least advantageous surfaces for COVID-19 or SARS-CoV, SARS-CoV-1, the uh, disease, the uh, virus that caused uh, the SARS epidemic nearly 20 years ago. So copper and cardboard were less advantageous. Stainless steel and plastic were more permissive of uh, ongoing viability of the of the viruses. So this has caused a lot of consternation and a desire really to use N95 respirators and PAPRs in uh, virtually every clinical situation. Again, there is not evidence of any significant degree that I'm aware of, of aerosol transmission of these virus particles and the occurrence of infection associated with them. I will say with a great deal of humility, again, that we're at 87 days into this pandemic and uh, we, we may learn contradictory evidence in, in that regard. But at this point in time and constrained as we are, and not seeing strong evidence of aerosol transmission, this experimental model notwithstanding, we are uh, using N95 respirators in uh, limited circumstances and using surgical masks otherwise. I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but these protective devices are in short supply. We're limiting their use to essential situations where we know a patient is under investigation or has proven COVID-19. We're not permitting students into the room of patients in med surge units who are known or suspected or in the ORs. 
We're controlling room entry. We are using powered air purifying respirators mostly to try to protect our supply of N95s, but we don't let anyone caring for a patient with COVID-19 enter a patient's room unless they've been trained in the use of a, of a respirator. Issues in the pandemic that require urgent attention, I believe, are further development of our surge capacity. We're expecting that with the fidelity of our predictive model to what's happening on the ground, that uh, we're going to see a significant surge in the next week to 10 days. And with that, we will need to uh, have capabilities beyond our hospital walls. Conservation practices are essential for our personal protective equipment. We need more availability of laboratory diagnostics, and that's coming, but it's still weeks uh, and perhaps uh, a month or more away. We're now beyond the containment phase and in the mitigation phase of an accelerated pandemic, and we're thinking hard about how we redeploy staff, including surgeons, to places that they don't normally work. So I think that is my final slide. We'll be happy to, to take questions. TJ, thank you for that overview. It was absolutely fantastic and I think somewhat sobering, especially with that modeling. One of the questions that came up is that tool that you showed with the different variables, that's applicable to any region, any hospital, correct? That It is. It is. I didn't demonstrate the app, but it's open source and you can find it online. You just need to, to, to get a sense for your hospital or your health system. You just need to know from your marketing people what your market share is. You need to know from your public health folks how many actual cases there are in the region and what the doubling time is. And then uh, you can play with the estimates of the social determinants of health. I'm actually more pessimistic about the adherence to social determinants in, in this region. I think the model, as we're seeing it right now, is overly optimistic about social determinants. Before the panel might have some questions for you, one of the participants asked, does UV germicidal irradiation degrade polymers in N95 masks? We have some of our laboratorians and engineers looking at that right now. UV irradiation as a tool, I have some skepticism about it because of the, the configuration of the mask and whether the UV radiation can actually interface with all surfaces of the mask. So we're actually putting up reflectors in the room, in the rooms where we're using UV radiation. It's really uncertain at this point whether there, there is degra uh, degradation of the fibers. There's probably less degradation with heat. And so we're thinking about moving to a, an 80 degree centigrade heat source, but that doesn't have the same capacity that UV light does. And we have to turn over a lot of these every day. The app, someone has asked if I could name the app. The app is called CHIME, C-H-I-M-E. It's an acronym that I can't recall all of the words for it, but uh, capital C-H-I-M-E. There's another question from the group, uh, or from the audience. Is there any data to show multiple strains of COVID-19 are some more virulent than others? There, there's certainly speculation about that in Italy, where the morbidity and the mortality seem to be particularly high. I'm not aware of differences in virulence, and I'm not aware of differences in strains. Certainly over time, as this continues to circulate, I expect we will see that. And as we develop drugs, I'm, I'm sure that we'll uh, quickly see resistance to the drugs. But I'm not aware of differences in virulence at this point. Another question. Should we be testing all patients, non-emergencies, but urgencies, before going to the OR in order to conserve PPE? That question comes up a lot. Testing is a constrained resource for us as well. And, of course, the wild card here is that there are asymptomatic cases in the absence of respiratory symptoms, and I think that the questionnaires that we've all been using uh, related to travel are less relevant now with the disease so prevalent uh, in the United States, but 
in the absence of clinical symptoms or any radiographic evidence, I would not recommend the use of screening for COVID-19. The most recent test kit that we've had available to us is one that will turn around an assay in 45 minutes. When that becomes abundant, then I think that will have a lot of utility for us in uh, in doing preoperative screening procedures. But until then, I think we're going to be uh, very constrained and I wouldn't recommend it. One of the participants is asking that their hospital is recommending reusing the N95 mask even in COVID-19 positive patients if the mask is not soiled. Is the mask contaminated and is that why you're recommending a one-time use? The mask can be contaminated if droplets contact the mask from somebody who's coughing. So if you have a COVID-19 patient who's coughing, I would have the patient wear a mask whenever healthcare workers in the room to the extent that they're able. If they have respiratory distress, obviously, that might be difficult. If they're ventilated, they're on a closed circuit and droplets should not be expelled from the, from the closed circuit. The mask surface can be contaminated. One of the things you can do is wear a surgical mask if you have enough of those over the N95 and then discard the surgical mask. But our recommendation is to discard the N95 after any contact with a, uh, uh, particularly in an aerosol generating procedure uh, on a COVID-19 patient. How do you feel about surgeons using their own purchased PPE? A lot of people are doing that. Uh, I, I don't see a lot of people uh, at our hospital, but I know that some have purchased their own N95s. You know, there's there's a sense of inequity among the staff. You know, we're, uh, we keep hearing uh, we're all in this together. So there's a sense of inequity among the staff when they see uh, some going around in N95s and others not. Uh, I don't think N95s are, are necessary in, in every circumstance. So I, I don't feel, to answer your question about how I feel, I don't feel great about uh, about people going outside the uh, the recommendations that we have. I think it really, uh, you know, at a time like this when everybody's trying to, you know, pull together and uh, everybody's very fearful, uh, I think um, uh, people going outside the recommendations create uh, a lot of uh, discontent uh, among the staff. What about re-sterilizing N95s in vaporized hydrogen peroxide? Is this safe? We think it probably is. It it it, it it moistens the mask, obviously, as hydrogen peroxide breaks down, and that makes me a little bit nervous. Uh, and, and for that reason, we're not using it, but it probably is effective. Uh, and this is another uh, fantastic question. I mean, PJ, we could probably keep you on all night. I think there's a lot of, uh, at least in the orthopedic trauma community, there's a lot of questions. How long does it take your region to get beyond its peak? How do you know if you're beyond your peak? And what happens on the other side, right? So everyone's been talking about peak. But what's yeah. the other side of that curve look like, and how long till things go back to normal? It depends. Well, how long uh, and, and, and what the area under the curve is depends on the effectiveness of social distancing. So the more effective you are in social distancing, the flatter the curve, the flatter, the lower the peak, but the longer the epidemic period may be. The other side of the peak uh, involves new cases continuing to occur but fewer cases occurring on a daily basis. So we all heard in, uh, uh, in Wuhan about how the curve you know, began to turn. You may remember in the first couple of weeks in February, uh, around the time that the case definition was changed, but for a period thereafter, the numbers of cases ranged between two and 4,000 a day, which was really, really astonishing. And then we began to hear it was going down, and then we heard there were 100 a day, 
and recently there have been zero. So eventually it uh, uh, it will turn as herd immunity develops, as uh, more and more people are uh, are infected, and uh, you know the, the the far side of the curve will not be that much different from the near side of the curve uh, on the ascent. Uh, there'll still be lots of cases occurring, but fewer and fewer each day until we finally begin to, you know, feel some relief. I, I see there's a question uh, about viral load, viral load affecting the severity yeah. of the symptoms. Viral load uh, pr- certainly affects the uh, detectability uh, in the assays, but I'm not aware of the uh, of the viral load uh, affecting the severity of symptoms. Uh, it probably has something to do with the onset of infection. And you know the time from uh, exposure to infection, but uh, I'm not aware of it affecting the severity of the symptoms. And then this is a scenario that we're seeing more and more happening. If you happen to be the last surgeon on the service that can do calls because your four colleagues are all on quarantine, do you recommend that last surgeon available wear an N95 max continuously, seeing patients and doing consultations in an effort to prevent that person also acquiring the disease? Or is there something that they can do to really prevent it if they're the, if you will, last person standing? In in very significant outbreak situations, wearing a, two things really seemed to make a difference. It was wearing a, a face shield of some kind, but even a surgical mask seemed to be effective and not less effective than an N95. And then the second thing, and really important, is hand hygiene. Uh, washing your hands frequently. You know, we, we should all have chafed hands right now, unfortunately. You know, touching surfaces is a way that some people will acquire this. So both protecting uh, yourself from droplets with uh, any sort of shield and then uh, and then uh, using good hand hygiene. One more question, and, I, and we will let you go, uh, and we appreciate your time this evening with us. Two questions, actually. What, well, a little bit more about the virus. Do asymptomatic carriers shed virus only for 24 hours before becoming symptomatic? Can you give us a little bit more about the virus and sort of how it behaves and and how that can affect us as clinicians and or how we manage our patients? There are some patients who seem to be asymptomatic for extended periods of time. We think they're in in the very distinct minority. Most people who have been discovered as asymptomatic carriers of your will, if you will, do develop symptoms within about 24 to 24 to 36 hours. So as we investigate contacts of cases, we're using that time frame to, to bracket those we would um, consider exposed and, and isolate, and that seems to be working pretty well. So um, most people who shed do become symptomatic shortly thereafter and uh, asymptomatic uh, shedders seem to be a a very distinct minority. Great. Um, Unless there's other questions from our uh, faculty panel uh, that are on the phone right now, um, I I would like to just ask one last question, PJ. For those people who are either on the call or listening uh, later on on the recorded webinar, there are definitely people out there who said this is, you know, they're on the left side of the bell curve. This isn't really happening. It's not so bad. It's going to be okay. Um, and it, seeing what we're seeing right now, this is quite sobering. What's happening in New York, I think both Bill and Ken, who are in New York, can probably attest to this. But from your perspective as an infectious disease doctor, as a chief medical officer, as an epidemiologist, how real is this and what is this going to look like? And, and when do you think, I think one of the things we hear is, when is this going to end? We don't know that it will end when the warm weather comes in some parts of the country. There's no evidence for that yet. Uh, time will tell. 
The best that we can say right now is that the uh, epidemic, which became a pandemic, began in mid-December in, in Wuhan in a, in a meat market, probably through uh, zoonotic transmission from animal sources. And now in uh, mid-March, the uh, number of cases reported has dropped to zero. So that was about a 90-day uh, a period during which very draconian measures were taken that really uh, you know, disrupted that society. Whether it was those measures or whether it just ran its course and herd immunity kicked in, only time will tell. We haven't implemented measures to the same degree. But optimistically, I, we would say uh, within 90 days, and it really began to kick in here around the beginning of uh, February, so February, March through April into May, if we're optimistic. Uh, I'm less optimistic about that. I think the uh, social distancing in China probably had a lot to do with the uh, with the end of the epidemic. So I'm anticipating that this is going to go into the summer uh, on the far side of the curve. Okay. With that, I'd like to give uh, Dr. Brennan the rest of this evening. Uh, he's been very, very patient with us and our questions, uh, and uh, we look forward to interacting with you in the future, Dr. Brennan. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll move on to the next part of our uh, our, our webinar. Thanks, PJ. Thanks, Samir. Bye. The OTA Podcast Committee would also like to thank Dr. Brennan for his time and expertise on this crisis, as well as the rest of our panel. On the next episode, we will hear more from the OTA panel on how orthopedic trauma surgeons are now treating patients acutely. Thank you for listening to the OTA Podcast, a Convey MD production. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the OTA channel wherever you get your podcast. And to learn more about becoming a member and providing the highest quality orthopedic trauma care, visit the Orthopedic Trauma Association at OTA.org.